All right, well, good morning, guys. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor here, and we are working our way through the book of Acts. And so grab your Bibles, and let's flip over to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Um, in our Bibles, that's page 911. Some of you will be excited to know that today we get to turn the page to page 912. We've been on page 911 since the beginning of the year. Um, so that was kind of exciting to me. I don't know about you. But um, so if you're using one of our Bibles, we're going to page 911. We're going to Acts chapter 4. And uh, we're going to be looking at a, a fairly lengthy ses- section this morning, one through verses 1 through 31. I'm going to ask you to keep your Bibles open and keep them handy because we're going to be referring to the text as we go through the sermon. I'm not going to read it all at one time. Um, it's, it's, an, it's a developing story through the chapter, and so we're going to read the, the, uh, the relevant sections as we move our way through. So let's take a look. We're going to begin with verses 1 through 4, okay? Acts chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. The word of the Lord. All right, let me give you some context. Um, If you're a guest with us, let me get you up to speed, but let's remind ourselves where we are. Uh, when we're reading this story, this is taking place about, you know, within a month of the, uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus rose from the dead. He then appeared to all of the core disciples. He appeared to over 500 disciples at once. Um, he, he, he made his way around. He, he, he met with people, talked with people, ate with people. And then in the beginning of Acts, he ascended into heaven, right? He, he said, look, I'm, I'm out of here for a while. I'm leaving, and I'm leaving you with a job, right? I'm, I'm raised from the dead. I did the work I came to do. I died for your sins. I took your place in judgment. I was your substitute. I satisfied God in regard to your cosmic treason. And I rose again, proving God was completely satisfied, and there's now forgiveness in me. And, and now I'm leaving, but I'm leaving you with a job. Your job is to be my witnesses. Your job is to tell people, of who I am and what I've done, right? You are to be disciples who make disciples. You're you're to go deep in my love for you, right? And allow that to change you and free you in radical and and beautiful ways and challenging ways. You don't know yet, but be a disciple, right? Allow the love of God to to come in and, and really saturate your soul and change you and then be one who makes disciples, introducing others to who I am and what I've done so that they also can taste deeply of that love and be transformed. Go deep in God's love and invite others into that love. And I want you to go to Jerusalem and, 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 and Samaria and Judea and to the ends of the earth, right? So these, these, these circles, right? Begin in Jerusalem where you are and then go to the surrounding regions and then keep right on going, <laughs> right? As you are going, as you are living, work your way out, right? I'm leaving you with a mission and that mission is global, in its, um, in its scope, right? But begin where you are, right? And, and I'm going to give you the gift of the Spirit to enable you and empower you with that mission, right? So as I step away, um, 
I'm not leaving you as orphans. Like in John 14, when he explained that, that he was going to, to give the Spirit, um, he said to them, look, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. The Helper, the Paraclete, the Spirit of God is going to come and He's going to indwell you and be with you in ways that, that are, are freeing and empowering, right? So the Spirit's going to come um, and He's going to indwell you and work through you uh, so that um, as you go deep as a disciple, the Spirit's the one that's going to be awakening your heart to my love and changing you and, and working through you to awaken others, right? And, and so they did that. And, um, and so they started preaching about Jesus, right? We, we saw that on, on, on Pentecost, right? The Spirit of God came, and it was this huge event, and, 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 and people paid attention, right? Because these guys flooded out into the street, and the Spirit gave them the gifts of languages, so they were able to go out and speak in languages they didn't know. And, and at this festival where people came from all over the, the, the known world at that time, um, they heard the disciples speaking to them in their own languages, and they were hearing about the love of God, and, and 3,000 people became followers of Christ in a single day, Right? And as they continued uh, meeting in the porch of Solomon, which uh, was, was the part of the temple where public discourse was held, and so they would meet in this area where, where people would basically have open-air preaching or open-air conversation, every day they were, they were having these conversations and continuing to share about the love of Christ, and more and more people were, were becoming believers every day. It was only a matter of time before the religious leaders would notice. Now, just remember, the religious leaders were instrumental in having Jesus crucified, right? They, they, they felt threatened by Jesus' use of power um, and so had him crucified to basically make him go away. Um, so now we're faced with this. The, the, those leaders are now going to step back into the picture. And in the same way they sought to intimidate and use force to silence Jesus, they are now going to intimidate and try to use force to silence the disciples. And so we're, we're going to be asking simple questions like, how did the early church respond when they faced opposition and persecution, right? When they faced violence and, 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 and loss of, of, of position, of, of economic advantage, of personal comfort, and even personal safety to the point of even dying, right? Because we know that, that ultimately that's where it goes. All of the uh, original apostles f- end up facing martyrs' deaths. They, they end up dying for their faith. The persecution gets to a point where they're like, all right, we're done trying to hurt you. We're just going to kill you. Um, except John, who ends up exiled on the island of Patmos, which um, was also meant to silence him. Um, so, so how do they deal with this, right? How, what, what explains their boldness? What explains um, their life, right? Were they really fearless? And, and is that replicatable for us today? How are we supposed to enter into this? How is this supposed to inform um, uh, our lives when we face the abuse of power? And, and honestly, how does it challenge our hearts when we're tempted to abuse power? Here's the thing. The resurrection of Jesus completely revolutionizes our understanding of power and authority. And it frees us to step outside of the power structures of this world, the authority structures of this world, and become truly transformative to our communities, our neighborhoods, our relationships in ways that are beautiful and free, but very challenging. So let's take a look at our passage. First of all, we have this first section, which is the beginning of the intimidation. Um, the religious leaders who conspired to kill Jesus and silence him um, did it because he had become a danger to their status quo. 
right? The reason they paid attention to Jesus wasn't because he claimed to be the Messiah. There were a lot of people who had claimed to be the Messiah, and the leaders were just mildly amused by them, right? The reason Jesus became dangerous was because he was exercising an authority that made people pay attention to him. And that became, uh, when, they, when he exercised power, like, like healing uh, people on the Sabbath, that challenged their authority because they taught you can't do anything on the Sabbath. That's work. And so when Jesus did things on the Sabbath, like, like healing um, people from, from leprosy or from lameness, it became this huge threat to them, and, and their authority became challenged. That's when they started paying attention to Jesus, right? When, when he became a threat to their, their authority. And so they tried to manipulate him, to intimidate him. We know how that story goes. They eventually decided the only way to get rid of him, the only way to silence him, was to conspire with the Romans to actually kill him. And so they did, right? Um, They thought they had succeeded, right? Yay, good day. Jesus is dead. Um, the, The trouble is gone. We can go back to our comfortable positions of privilege and power and comfort and stop being disturbed by by this guy that that just keeps rattling the cage, right? The problem was he didn't stay dead, right? He rose from the grave, and and it wasn't long before they started hearing rumors, man, the, the body of Jesus isn't in the grave anymore, right? And, and then they start hearing rumors that he's actually appearing to people, eating with them and talking with them. And the next thing they know, these disciples who were scattered and humiliated on the night of his crucifixion, Peter, one of the prominent leaders of the disciples, publicly denied Jesus in the very courtyard where Jesus was being tried, right? In the middle of the night, he's, he's like following from a distance, and the slave girl's like, hey, I, I recognize your accent. Aren't you one of the ones that was with Jesus? And he's like, no, nah, I wasn't with him. No, you were one of the ones. No, nah, I wasn't with him. And finally, he swore with an oath. I don't know the man. And then he goes off into the darkness, completely humiliated. The leaders at that point thought, man, victory achieved. And yet here they are. <laughs> preaching publicly, with a, with a, with an, infused with this new sense of boldness, right? And, and, and actually demonstrating new demonstrations of power. And, and the group is starting to grow exponentially, right? They started with 120 disciples. And, and then after one day of preaching the gospel, they were at 3,000. And then by the time we get to the end of this section, it says there were 5,000 men, which means there were over 10,000 believers in the company. They were growing exponentially. So in verse 2, I love this. In verse 2, when it says, um, after the, the leaders come upon them, they were greatly annoyed. I'm sure they were, right? Like, can't we get rid of you guys? Like, we killed your leader. We tried, right? And here you are back again. They were greatly annoyed. They killed Jesus to get rid of this problem, and it just won't go away. They had probably been just waiting it out, hoping that, that the rumors of Jesus' resurrection would just die out. But then they go and do something crazy. In, in, in Acts chapter 3, remember when, when Peter and John were entering the temple, there was a, a man lame begging at the, at the gate of the temple, and they healed him. And he was leaping and dancing and praising God, and everybody saw it, right? So all of a sudden, there are these demonstrations of power they can't explain. And so they went and arrested them, right? It says that, that it was the captain of the guard, the Sanhedrin. The, so it's, it's all the power players 
um, come together and they're like, all right, we got we to gotta do something about this. And so they arrest them at night and then keep them in jail overnight, which is, uh, I'm assuming, a, an intentional ploy, right? Because what it does is it increases the level of intimidation, right? We're going to let you sit on this for a little while. We want, we want to let you know that, that we have power. We want to let you know that, that we can do things here, right? So we're going to arrest you. We're going to stick you in this cell, and we don't meet till tomorrow morning, right? We're not going to inconvenience ourselves because, because you're making a nuisance of yourself. You're going to realize we have power. You're going to have to wait on us, right? And so reminding them how helpless they are, they're, they're stuck in jail overnight. Take a look at verses 5 through 12 as it escalates. In verse 5, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. Um, This is a big gathering, rulers, elders, scribes. We're talking people that generally don't get along together. Okay, The the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees didn't like each other. They were the liberal and conservative branches of Judaism at the time. Uh, the, The Sadducees were in charge of the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees were the lawyers or the scribes. Um, when, when there was a common threat, though, they came together and operated together. Verse 5, with, with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all who were in the high priestly family. Okay, pay attention to that. Everybody's there, <laughs> right? This is a, quite the, the, the impressive display of authority, right? Um, Annas is, is uh, the high priest, Caiaphas, and John. You're talking about three generations of the high priestly family, right? One who was the high priest, but like the president is, is kind of like the high priest emeritus, like, like he gets to continue to carry the title, but, but now it's his son who's the high priest. And then his son, John, is also there, the one who will be the high priest, right? They got the whole family there in a very dis, uh, 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 impressive display of power. Verse seven, and when they had set them in the midst right? Catch that. They surround them. They put them in a position where they're going to feel disempowered and intimidated, right? We kept them overnight in a jail cell. Now we drag them out and we surround them with this display of power. And they inquired, by what power, by what name did you do this? By what power or what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers, of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So they lead them into this place of intimidation. And the heart of their question is this. When they say, by whose authority did you do this? What they're really saying is, is where do you guys get off? Seriously, where do you guys get off? Where do you think you have the right to do what you just did. All right, we need to pause for a minute. We need to unpack and define our terms, right? Uh, What is, when we talk about having power, what do we mean? When we talk about having authority, what do we mean? All right, power, very simply, is the ability to do what I want when I want, 
That's power, right? So, so if I want to move a stone, if I have the power to do so, I can leverage that power to move that stone, right? Power is the ability to do what I want when I want. If, if, if I want to do it, I can do it. That means I have power. It's the ability to get something done, right? If I want to buy a car, if I have the power to buy that car when I want to, I, ha- I can, right? So I need to have financial power to buy a car, right? If I have the money, then I have the power. I don't have to exercise it if I don't want to, right? That's the want part. But the power means I can if I want to, right? If I want to meet a person, power is the ability to do that, right? To, to, to have the social influence and connections necessary to meet the person you want to meet, right? I may have um, the power, but not want to exercise it. So there may be some people I have the power to meet that I don't want to meet. There are also a lot of things I want to do that I don't have the power to do, right? Probably a lot of things you would like to do that you can't do because you don't have the financial power. You can't buy the car you want to buy or the house you want to buy because you don't have the social influence you don't have. You, you, you can't meet the person, right? So, so power is the ability to do what we want when we want it. Are you tracking with me? Right? I'm, I'm begging the simplicity of it, but, but there's a reason for that, okay? Power is the ability to do what we want when we want. There are things that we have the power to do, but not the authority. Authority is the permission to exercise my power, okay? Authority is the permission to exercise my power, So power is the ability to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And there are things that I have the power to do, but honestly, I don't have the authority to do, all right? If I see Jay-Z walking down the street, I'm like, dude, I'm like giving him a bear hug, right? I have the power to walk up and hug the man. I don't have the authority. And his bodyguards are going to remind me of that very, very quickly. You know what I'm saying? Like when I'm laying on the street with a boot on the side of my head, right? And he's like, dude, and they're rushing, ushering Jay-Z into his limo and, and, and everybody's like freaking out, right? I realized in that moment, while I had the power to do it, I did not have the authority. I didn't have the permission, right? So, so there are things that I have the power to do that I do not have the authority to do. So are you getting the distinction? Yes? Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right, um, when we try to exercise power, but we don't have permission to exercise that power, those with greater authority will use their power to bring us back in line, right? Parents do it all the time, right? Your kids have the power to absolutely destroy your home, right? But you have a greater authority, so you exercise your power to limit their power because you don't want them drawing on the walls, right? You don't want them ripping the toilet off of the ground and throwing it out the window, right? You don't want them completely destroying the environment. You exercise your authority to limit their power, right? You have to remind them where they stand on the power ladder, right? I brought you into this world and I can take you out again, right? <laughs> We exercise power to reinforce our authority. 
All right, you've heard the phrase um, climbing the ladder. It's a metaphor we use, right? So when we talk about climbing the ladder, what we're talking about is, is climbing the ladder of success, right? So if you're climbing the ladder of success, you are growing not just in power, but in authority. So the higher you go on the ladder, the more you can exercise your power to do what you want when you want, right? And, and, and the more power you have to do it, right? Because you have more financial resources, you have more social resources, you have more relational resources, right? So as you're climbing the ladder, you're actually growing in both power and authority, right? So there's a social ladder, a success ladder, a financial ladder that, that we work our ways up. And we all have a place on that ladder, every single one of us. And where we are on that ladder determines how we can use our power. The higher you are on that ladder, the more freedom you have to use your power. Tracking? With me? So authority is the ability or the permission to use the power that I have. If I don't have the authority, those with greater authority will use theirs to keep my power in line. Right? So there are some things I want to do that I can't do. There are other times that while I want to do things, I don't have the power to do it. Authority allows me to do what I want, right? So authority is good when it's exercised properly, right? If somebody has the power to come into my home without invitation by breaking down the front door, authority properly keeps them from doing so, right? Authority exercises its power to protect me, to protect me and my things and my life and those that I love right? Authority is a a good thing, right? Because it limits the improper use of power. Authority is bad when it's used to protect my power at the expense of yours. Authority is bad when I refuse you power that it is your right to have, or I take power from you that you should have. In other words, everybody should have the power to live, right? This is part of the American idea of, of, of the freedom of life, right? The, the rights to liberty and life and the pursuit of happiness, right? You have the power to, to, to be alive. You have the power to protect yourself. You have the power um, to, to provide for yourself, right? And you should have the authority to exercise that power, to protect yourself, provide for yourself, to improve your life. You should have the authority to exercise your power. It would be a misuse of my authority, If I used my power to keep you from using your power to improve your life. All right, how does that translate to our passage? When the Sanhedrin looks at them and says, by what authority do you do this? What they're saying is there's clearly a demonstration of power here. You healed a a lame man. We can't deny that as much as we would love to. But who in the world gave you permission to do that? because it doesn't fit within our power structure. We didn't give you permission. We seriously doubt the Romans gave you permission. We, we understand their place in the ladder. They're above us. The Romans occupied uh, the land at this point, and they were subjugated to the Romans. The Romans had a position on the ladder that gave them greater authority that could limit other people's power, right? I don't think the Romans gave you the power to do this. Fairly confident the, the Pharisees didn't give you the power to do this, or the, or the zealots, right? We understand where they are. They're below us on the ladder, and if they gave you the, that power, we, we could exercise our authority to, to discipline them and bring them in line. And, but what authority, man? Where is your authority? Who's giving you permission to do this? Peter's response is the last thing they want to hear 
because it leaves them powerless and bewildered, right? What he says is our power, our authority comes from Jesus. You know that guy you killed? The one that rose from the dead? He's the one that both gives us our power and the authority to use it. You guys are, and this is kind of metaphorical in this because Peter draws this metaphor. You're building a house, a metaphorical system of power by which you're trying to order life. And you have a place for every stone in your system. You evaluated Jesus as a stone in that system and you rejected him. He didn't have a place in your system. He didn't have a place in your understanding of power and authority. And so you tossed him out. You tried to just get rid of the stone, right? It doesn't fit, right? We have a a way we're trying to do things, to order things, to keep things in line. Jesus didn't fit, so let's just get rid of him. Peter says, you know that stone you rejected? He's now the cornerstone. He's the primary stone of the building God is building. Now, the cornerstone... Um, and and it's, I, it's kind of difficult to know whether he's actually talking about the cornerstone of the building or the keystone of an arch. Either way, it's true. It's the critical stone that basically sets the lines for every other stone. So when you set the cornerstone of a building, you lay it down, every other stone is lined up with that stone, right? That's how you get straight lines. That's how you get straight walls. The cornerstone sets the angles and the lines for the rest of the entire building. So what it does is essentially it exercises its authority over the power of the rest of the stones. The rest of the stones have power. They're going to bear weight. They're going to play a critical role in the support of the building. But the cornerstone is what, the one that sets the lines or says this is the authority by which you get to use that power. You don't get to go outside of this line. The cornerstone is the primary stone, Right? Some other stone can't just come along and say, you know what, I don't like that line. I'm going to do my own thing. You're not going to end up with a building, right? The cornerstone sets it. So when when Peter says, man, he's the cornerstone, what he's saying is he's the new definition of authority. He's the one that defines how we use our power. He's the one that defines where we line up, what we get to do, and when we get to do it. Not you. So catch what he's saying. He's saying to them, look, you're exercising power under a perceived authority. But there's a problem because you're not in line with what God is building. You're the ones that are out of line. You're the ones that are out of authority. You're the ones who don't have permission to do what you're doing, to say what you're saying. Your authority, your system isn't in line with God's. Now, what's amazing is that Peter's little speech doesn't end with condemnation and judgment, right? He could have ended that sentence by saying, and so the God of authority now judges you, bam! And they're gone, right? All over. But that's not the role of the messenger in this age. Their role isn't to become the hammer of God, straightening out every system that is out of line, judging everybody who's not in line with the authority of God, their role are to be what? Messengers of the love of God. Look at the end of the paragraph. What does he do at the end? He says in verse 12, and there's salvation in no one else. And there's no other name under under heaven by which men can be saved. It's an invitation. 
You guys are out of line. But you can come in line. You guys are operating with an authority that is actually opposing God and trying to rob God of His glory and trying to establish your own. But there's repentance available if you just believe in Jesus. If you recognize that the stone you rejected is in fact the cornerstone, if you will come to trust the work of God instead of the work of your own hands, if you come to release your grip on power and your perceived illusion of authority and come in line with the true God of power and rest on His authority, there's salvation even for you. It ends with an invitation. Who has the authority here, you guys? When you look at this crazy scene of the Sanhedrin gathered around them like with, with all of their power displayed, like a peacock displaying its feathers, and then you got these humble disciples standing in the middle, who has the power here? Jesus. And the disciples are the only ones with clear enough eyes to recognize it. The disciples aren't the ones with power. They don't have a power or an authority that's their own. They're simply standing there in the power and under the authority of Jesus who sent them. And they're the ones with clear eyes being able to say, look, we recognize that the emperor has no clothes. And so we're graciously pointing out to you that this system that you're building, this authority that you're resting on, this exercise of power that you're so comfortable in using is an illusion. You're not safe. You're not powerful. But you can repent. You can be forgiven. You can be made new. Peter and John were moving with an authority the Sadducees didn't understand and they didn't want because it threatened their privilege, their privileged privilege position of power. It threatened their perceived position of authority. It, it threatened their glory, their little glorious kingdom they were building where, where people admired them and loved them. Their ability to do what they wanted when they wanted. See, if they didn't have the authority and they had come under the authority of God, it meant they would have to yield their authority and their illusion of power and actually submit themselves to the cornerstone and say to God, you can order my life. You can order my steps. I will live my life according to your authority, trusting that your hand is good and your direction is good. And this threat to their authority caused them great fear. Verse 13 Now, when the boldness of Peter and John, now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. When they recognized that they were uneducated common men, um, the Greek word for uneducated, agrammatos, literally means, you know, grammar, right? Uh, a grammatos means no letters, no grammar. Like, like, you guys don't know your English skills. You don't know how to speak proper English. You're speaking that, that substandard English. You're speaking an English that, that is clearly uneducated. Not only that, you're common. The Greek word is idiotas. You know what that means. You're, you're common, uneducated idiots. You clearly don't speak the language of power. You can't talk like me. You use inappropriate grammar. You don't dress like me. You don't have the, 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 the money and influence to look like me. Who are you to speak with boldness to me? 
They are affronted. They are astounded that these two would stand in front of this great display of power that is so intimidating and do it with boldness because they are uneducated idiots. They're unlearned, ungrammarized. They hadn't gone to the right schools. They hadn't been under the right rabbis. They hadn't gone through the right paths. They hadn't earned the right pedigrees to be able to get the social clout, to get the social influence that would give them the proper influence that would allow them to speak with this kind of authority in this kind of setting. They should be intimidated. They should be silent. Huh. What they're saying is we measure authority by education and rank, and you have neither. Everyone has the power to speak, but only some people have the authority. And in this setting, what they're saying is you may have the power, but you don't have the authority. We don't give you that permission. And because we're of a rank that we consider of higher authority, we're higher up the ladder. We have the authority to use our power to constrain yours. Hmm. It must have driven them crazy that they recognized that they were with Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Like this Jesus guy, they can't get rid of him. His influence is unsettling. It's revolutionary. It is upending everything about what makes their life comfortable and easy and privileged. (laughs) Suddenly everything is being questioned and challenged. And these guys are exercising power out of an authority they can't explain. So they find themselves in quite the uncomfortable position. And because the disciples had exercised this crazy kind of power, right? There's a lame man standing there walking around, right? He's been healed. Um, They find themselves actually limited in their authority in a way that makes them very uncomfortable, right? Right? Their ability to demand that the disciples do what they want them to do is limited because these guys have exercised an authority they don't have and can't understand. Take a look at verses 14 through 22. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, right? They're like, all right, you guys step out for a minute, right? Guards, take them away. We got to consider this. This is trickier than most situations. Let's figure this out, right? Verse 16, then saying, what shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them. In other words, they've exercised a power that we can't explain away. And it's evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. What should they be doing, by the way? Instead of denying that a lame man was made whole, what should they be doing? They should be asking how it happened. They should recognize that this display of power is so foreign to their understanding of authority that it should humble them and invite them, right? But instead of asking questions, they shift to questioning. See, asking questions is a a posture of humility, that says, you have something to tell me. I have something to learn from you. They can't learn from these men because they're uneducated common men. They can't learn from these men because they have such a superiority complex. They're so in love with their position of authority that they move immediately to questioning, which is how can we get rid of them? 
but in order that it may spread no further among the people. Let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. You know what that word warn means, right? (laughs) It means threaten. We have authority and permission to use it, which means we're going to use our power. If you don't do what we want, we're going to make your life uncomfortable. If you don't do what we want, you're going to hurt, you're going to suffer, you're, you're going to lose privileges. We, we can do things, right? And the ultimate threat is we actually have the ability to kill you, right? That's the ultimate threat uh, of, of, of misused authority, right? Verse 18, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. In other words, whose authority should we pay attention to? You guys are really just, you know, impressive in your display here. Like, I love the colors, peacocks, right? This is really impressive. But Jesus came back from the dead. You killed him, right? You exercised your greatest authority and your greatest power, and you killed him. He came back from the dead. Who should we listen to? You tell me, right? You, you judge. <laughs> Who's right to listen to? You or the guy that you tried to kill, and he came back from the dead? Verse 20, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Verse 21, and when they had further threatened them, because that's all they can do, They let them go, finding no other way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. The man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. You know what's interesting right here is the fact that they know their power is an illusion. It's completely dependent on the people around them to grant it to them. Their authority has to be given to them by the people around them. In other words, the people around them have to be complicit in the structure of their power. If people don't give them the power, they don't have it. If people don't give them the authority, they don't have it. And so what they do is they they pacify and intimidate in order to stay in a position of power. And when they realize that their ability to pacify and intimidate is threatened, they pull back. In other words, they realize their authority is limited so they can no longer exercise their power. Why is their authority limited? Because this guy was healed and everybody's rejoicing. And they're like, holy cow, this was a great sign. This is a beautiful thing. The power of God manifests in healing a man who's like over 40. He's been lame. We all know the guy. He's walking around. They can't deny it. They can't make it go away. They have to figure out how to work around it. They're being faced with an authority that trumps their own. In that moment, they have no choice but to release them. All right, so now we see the disciples in this next section of the passage. Um, Even to someone who believes in the resurrection from the dead... Even to somebody who has seen the resurrected Jesus, threats of violence are intimidating, right? 
Peter and John have just been threatened, and they know that the the Sanhedrin has the ability to trump up charges. They know that the Sanhedrin has the ability to plant evidence. They know that the Sanhedrin has the ability to make things look um, like they actually aren't, and and they have the ability to manipulate public uh, opinion, and and they know that, that they are in real danger, right? So even if you know Jesus was raised from the dead, they're facing an intimidating situation right? Threats of physical violence and even death are unpleasant. They're unsettling. They're scary. Here's the thing, you guys. The Sanhedrin has real power. They just have it under fraudulent authority. But it's still real and it's still dangerous. So we get a glimpse into the disciples as they come together. And I want you to see really the strength of the disciples as they come together and they, and they huddle together in prayer. And how that really compares previously to this huddle of, of the Sanhedrin, these, man, these men that are clothed in their authority and power, and the reality is they're weak and they're writhing their hands and they're afraid of losing their power. Just look at the boldness and the real strength of the disciples as they come before the one true authority of the universe, starting in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God, saying, Sovereign Lord. Notice how they start. Sovereign Lord, you're the true authority of the universe. You have real power, right? Who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. You're the one who has real power. They have perceived power. All they can do is take away. You're the one who gives. You spoke nothing from nothing, something into existence. You spoke from the absence of life. You spoke life into existence. You have real power. You have real authority. So they're reminding themselves at the opening of their prayer, Lord, you're the one. They're intimidating. They're scary. They can take things away from us, but you're the real giver of life. You're the real power and the only true authority in the universe. Verse 25, who through the mouth of our father, David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, both the religious and political leaders of the day, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, everybody, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Pause there. They quote the Old Testament, and what they're saying basically is this, Lord, you told us this would happen. You said that the nations would rage, that the people would plot in vain, that they were going to establish an authority by which they could exercise their power in opposition to yours but it would be vain. In other words, it would not be successful. It would be empty in its ultimate expression. It would fail. Their power would fail, right? Ironically, when we look at this passage, when you see the three generations of high high priestly authority gathered around the Sanhedrin, in just 40 short years, the entire city is going to be raised and destroyed. Everything that they base their power on and their authority on is going to disappear, and they're powerless to stop it. They don't realize how powerless they actually are. 
the irony of them building up this impression of comfort and power and influence. When in reality, they don't have the power to do anything outside of the will of God. God even uses their rebellion for His purpose of good. They crucified Jesus with an attempt to silence His voice. God allowed them and in fact used them to crucify Jesus to work His salvation plan for all mankind. Their rebellion was in fact a tool in the hand of a sovereign God who laughed at their rebellion, who mocked at their mockery, who was not intimidated by their intimidation nor afraid of their threats because they had no power outside of the power that had been granted to them and their illusion of authority was no threat to the true authority of God. See, what's happening is they're reminding themselves that they have a God who works over and through the events of history as they're reminding themselves that even in this situation, God is still in control right? There's no promise that they won't suffer. There's no promise that they won't hurt. And in fact, they do. They end up suffering and they end up dying for their faith. But that was not outside of the will of God. That did not mean that God was powerless or without authority. It meant God was doing something greater. And that in the end, their greatest threat was a speed bump on the way to God's established kingdom. What's the worst they could do? They could take their lives. Is that really threatening when you have a God who promises to restore it? When you have a God who says there is a resurrection? They may destroy this tent of clay, but I'm going to raise you up in a glorious new body like Christ's. There will be an establishment of the kingdom. There will come a time when God will return in his authority and exercise his power to reestablish his kingdom on the face of the earth. There will come a time when there will come a cleansing over the created order and there will be a glorious new heaven and earth. But until that time, You're left here to be my witnesses. You are left here to be bold with the message of a God who is working to redeem and restore in a lost and broken world. He will even work through the rebellion of mankind to deliver them from the consequences of their rebellion. So they're reminding themselves, right? And then they go on. In verse 30 or uh, 29, and now, Lord, after they've reminded themselves of his sovereignty, of his power, that he's already promised to work even through the rebellion of mankind, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak the word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and do signs and wonders and perform through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. What's the heart of their prayer? Give us boldness. In this world where it is so easy to simply see what's in front of my face, give me a far-reaching vision. They're intimidating, they're scary, but Lord, allow me to have a vision that allows me to see past their threats to your glory, past their limited illusion of authority to your true authority. Allow me to trust in the exercise of your power 
that I might be bold in pursuing the mission that you've entrusted to me. And as I'm doing that, Lord, will you demonstrate your power? Will you continue to unleash your power in my life and through me in the life of others? Will you work out the blessings of the gospel? And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. God immediately answered their prayer with a physical manifestation of his power to remind them, I'm still on the throne. I am in control. There is no authority outside of mine. All of that's an illusion. Don't be afraid of them. I'm the one who can shake the ground underneath your feet. I'm the one that can end this story in a moment. But I haven't because I have a plan and you're part of that plan. So you move forward with boldness. You move forward being a messenger of reconciliation, an embodiment of my love. You continue to give the invitation even in the face of their threats, even in the face of their rejection. You continue to speak of my love, experience my love, and invite others into my love. Do not allow their illusion of authority and their exercise and misuse of power to intimidate you into silence. All right, how do we apply this? Um, a couple quick points. Lengthy passage, man, so filled. And, uh, and I've really been wrestling with, with the application piece of this and how to drive it home. Um, my prayer for us is that we would be bold. Our prayer is, is that my prayer is that we would be bold. But here's the challenge, you guys. Who do you identify with in this story? The disciples or the Sanhedrin? I think we often come and immediately identify ourselves with the disciples. But the reality is, I think we're often just like the Sanhedrin. We're comfortable in our experience of life, in our privileged positions of power. And as a result, we become very defensive when anything comes in and threatens our comfort, our influence, and our authority. We live in a culture right now that is being ripped apart by this very discussion. Right? I mean, I mean issues of race, of, of, of social and political power, of gender, of, of, of economic disparity. Our culture is being ripped apart by, by this because there are people that are higher on the ladder than others. And those that are higher on the ladder are desperate to protect their, their position against those that are lower. And those that are lower are crying out and saying, we, we have a right to be higher. Where should we be in this conversation? Brothers and sisters in Christ, let's get off the ladder. It is not for us to defend our positions of privilege. And I, I, here, let me give you an example. I had, I had pages and pages and pages that I ended up deleting because I'm out of time, but I'm just, let me just drive this home, right? Um, 
There's an unspoken economy in our culture of power. And we know this, right? We understand the economy of money. The more money I have, the more power I have, right? We understand that. But there's an unspoken economy in our culture, right? In our culture, we value certain things more than others. So if you are attractive, you have more power than somebody who isn't. Can we agree on that? Isn't that true? Somebody who's beautiful, somebody who is talented, has more power than somebody who isn't. So like if you're a, a, an attractive, like, like just a beautiful dude who's smart and you, you can say the right things at the right time and you're cut, right? You just have the right body shape and, and you've got the right face and you're perfectly featured, you're going to get better treatment than someone who isn't. You know what I'm saying? And, and if somehow you end up getting the media's attention for some reason, TMZ starts following you around and they start reporting on where you're eating and what you're wearing and what you're driving and, and oh, look how his hair is messed up differently today. You know what I'm saying, right? You add fame to that mix, how much power does that guy have? He has a lot. Power is the ability to do what you want when you want. He's going to move to the front of the line. He gets the seat that he wants at the restaurant. He he can do whatever he wants. If he can find a way to to actually monetize that fame, right? Get a talk show, maybe start getting little bit parts in movies. Then then he's able to solidify that position of power. But for those who aren't attractive, and I mean by by our earthly standards, by our, like, like, you know, somebody who isn't necessarily... Um, really quick-witted and able to, they have less power, right? Somebody who is the wrong race in the wrong neighborhood. Somebody who's the wrong gender, right? This is real, the wage gap. You guys know this, right? Women across the board make 79% equity of men. In other words, they get paid 21% less for the same exact job across the board, across the United States. Not in every situation, not in every profession, but across the board, there is a 21% wage gap. Women get paid less than men. And most dudes are like, I didn't notice. But I guarantee you, if you're a professional woman who is working hard and you see your wage compared to men, you notice. You know why? Because we notice the people that are higher than us on the ladder. We pay attention to them. You know why? Because that's where we want to be. We don't pay attention to the people that are below us. You know why? Because we don't have to. There's nothing that requires us to look down and understand their experience or their reality. We understand where we are and we know where we want to go. Listen to me, you guys. I want us to be bold enough to listen to the marginalized. I want us to be bold enough to try to understand the experience of people whose experience is different than ours. And when they look at us and they say, you have privilege and you have power I don't have, I don't want us to respond with a knee-jerk reaction of defensiveness. I want us to be people who ask questions instead of just immediately start questioning. To listen, to understand, to build relationships Because the gospel calls us to see every person created in the Imago Dei, in the image of God, with a right to an invitation to the gospel. And our primary purpose during this age is not to solidify our power or to enjoy a position of privilege or pleasure. Our primary reason for still being on the face of the earth is to share the love of God. 
And that means we need to have the boldness to listen and to understand and to look in places we're not required to look and to listen to voices we're not required to listen to and to have conversations that make us uncomfortable and be willing to examine our own positions of authority and the way we exercise power. All right. There's a lot more to be said, can't be said this morning. Let us be bold in the gospel. Let us be bold in grace. Let let us be people that are undone by the love of God, so much so that we are not worried about protecting our own names, fighting for our, our own comfort. Let us be people that are resting in the sovereign hand of God who is working in this world to call lost and broken people into healing and wholeness. Let's be disciples who make disciples. We're going to move into a time of response. I'm going to put some questions on the overhead, ask you to pray. Let God speak to your heart. We're going to share communion in a moment. We do this every week. It's our way of of just bringing our hearts back to what really matters. And that's the love of God manifest to us in Christ. But we'll do that in a moment. For now, let me pray for us. We're going to create a space where we can just let God speak to our hearts. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are the ultimate example of the very thing we're describing today. Philippians 2 tells us, Jesus, that, that you humbled yourself. That you didn't consider equality with God, your experience of his power and glory, something to be grasped onto and not released. But you humbled yourself by taking on the form of a servant. Lord, you you voluntarily came down the ladder. You voluntarily listened to the suffering and the voices of broken and lost people, not because they even had a right to be heard, but because you simply loved them and wanted to redeem them. And man, that's us. Lord, I thank you that, that you call us into that same redemptive flow, that we might be people that are not worried about fighting about our political position and influence and power, but we might be a people that are willing to fight that you might be represented well as the God who loves and sacrifices and calls people in to forgiveness and new life. Let us be bold, Lord. Bold enough to listen when it's hard. Bold enough to speak when it may not be welcome. Bold enough to simply be obedient to the commission that's been given to us. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.